Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law, who had come from Jerusalem, gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the traditions of the elders. When they come back from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers and kettles. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the traditions of the elders, instead of eating their food with defiled hands? Jesus replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written, These people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, Honour your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their mother or father is korban, that is, devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like this. So Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull? he asked them. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart but into their stomach and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, What comes out of a person is what defiles them, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Thanks, Philip. Hello, everybody. Hope you are well. Now, Anthony has uh, opened a can of worms, I think, with this whole roast the preachers thing. And yes, you will have an opportunity to ask questions, but I thought I might uh, set the tone of how questions should go and I'll ask the first question. You can see just how easy questions can be. They don't need to be hard. Tell me something. How did you know which way to face when you came in the room? This is not rhetorical. You can just call out. How did you know which way to face? I need a dominant voice because I can't work out rhubarb, rhubarb, like... Chairs, that's good. The chairs made it really obvious, didn't they? Because they're kind of linked and say so if you wanted to be cool and sit like backwards like bad cop on it, 
that wouldn't quite work. So the chairs are good. Thank you, Jim. What we do, and you know Kids Fun Day is coming up, sometimes for Kids Fun Day we, we move the chairs out and the kids come in and they all seem to face the same direction as you guys. They work it out even without chairs and they're just kids. How do you reckon they figure it out? The stage, it's quite simple. When you have a stage and one that's set and all this sort of stuff, it anticipates that this is where you're meant to look, right? A stage anticipates that there's going to be some kind of a performance or show or thing to observe. A stage tends to gather an audience and when you get audiences and when you get shows, you tend to get a critique afterwards. The first one is you clap if you like it or if you hate it, you boo. You're not meant to boo, but you might. Um, or you... Yeah, things can happen if you don't like it. Uh, and then you might even write a review afterwards or speak your review afterwards. Where there's a stage, you tend to gather an audience, you tend to get some kind of show, and you tend to get some kind of critical review. And that is one of what I want to share with you this morning, this idea of a stage that has an audience, a show, and a review, because it all plays out in the first five verses of the reading today. There is a stage set. It gathers an audience, they've come for a show and they give it a review. Who is the expectant audience in verses 1 to 5? You meet them in verse 1. The expectant audience are these Jewish leaders called Pharisees and scribes. Verse 1, now the Pharisees and some of the scribes having come down from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus. Note this is an audience... They come from a place called Jerusalem in the north. This is like, uh, they don't have cars, remember? This is like you've walked from Gosford to Wollongong for a show. Better be a good one, right? So you've walked from Gosford to Wollongong for a show. That suggests that you might be expectant. My wife went to a show on Friday night in Sydney. She went to Hamilton. And apparently that's really good. And I'm just getting to be such a grumpy old man that I'm like, I don't think there's a spectacle in the world that I'm prepared to go out at night in the cold and come home late for. I'm getting old, right? (laughs) Anyway, these guys thought, worth coming from Jerusalem to Jesus is most likely in Capernaum right now, so he's in the south in, in, in the Galilee region. Uh, they're coming all the way from the central coast, Gosford to Wollongong, <coughs> because they're an expectant audience. They are Pharisees and they are scribes. Often we kind of go, oh, all the Jewish leaders, but they are more diverse than the people I'm looking at right now. A sect of Judaism. And in this little production, I would call them, they're like producers actually. The Pharisees like to think of themselves as the ones who create a hedge or create a fence. They love the law of God. They don't want anyone to transgress the law of God. And so their concept was that they build a hedge, they build laws around the law so that you'll be super safe from transgressing the law because there's a law around the law. So they build multiple laws to keep you right back. Unfortunately, one of the things is when you're right back from the law of God, you're also right back from the wisdom of God. You're right back from the revelation of God. And so they have this idea of a hedge. They're kind of producers. What they like to do and their elders have done is create this kind of standard for life, all these laws, and then they want to watch and see how well one another and how well others do at upholding the standard. They're kind of producers of a show, really. They've set a life concept up and now they're going to watch and see how you do. 
So they're an expectant audience, they're an invested audience, they're producers. They've come along with another group called scribes. Scribes are a little bit different. Uh, for one, scribes can read. It's in ancient times, not everyone can read. Scribes are scholars who study the law. So if the Pharisees are producers who walk in the ways of this law and commend this law in this show, the scribes are something like the critics who study how well the lines have been delivered, how, what is the actual script and how are you standing up. They're the critics. They teach it and they critique it. So you've got a very expectant audience that have turned up in Pharisees and scribes and they've come 150 odd kilometres to do it on foot and we've already been told that their colleagues who live locally, the Pharisees in Galilee, already have a plot to kill Jesus. If you ever had stage fright, spare a thought for poor Jesus who's got this audience. And did you notice they come from Jerusalem Mark doesn't say they came from Jerusalem to Capernaum. He says they came from Jerusalem and gathered around Jesus. I get this picture in my head. Jesus got his guitar case open like a busker and they've caught a gathered around to see the Jesus show. I don't think they're a neutral audience. They've come to see what's this guy got to offer. That's the audience we're dealing with. What's the show? Verses 1 to 2 starts to teach us about the show. The show they've come for they would title The Holy Life. They've come to see the rabbi from Nazareth and what he and his disciples... Now remember, a disciple is one who... They're not just a student. A disciple doesn't just learn information from their rabbi. A disciple learns a way of life. They pattern themselves on their rabbi. They walk like their rabbi. They dance or don't dance like their rabbi. They take on all the mannerisms and the information. These guys have come to watch the show that they might call The Holy Life. What do they see? Verse 2, They saw some of Jesus' disciples eating bread with unclean, that is, unwashed hands. And I'm going to come back to this idea of unclean hands a little bit later on this morning. What they see is those who are patterned on Jesus eating in a way contrary to what their script would dictate for a show called The Holy Life. So if that's the show, we then get the review. Verse 5 is the review. My summary of their review, we didn't like it. We didn't like the show. Boo, throw the fruit. You didn't do the show as we intended in mind. They say to Jesus... Why don't your disciples walk in line with the tradition of our elders but instead eat their bread with unclean hands? We produced a show, a perfectly good show. It's been handed down through generations and you dance your own crowd-pleasing steps. That's from Strictly Ballroom. I studied that in high school and it just popped into my head. Um, you did your own crowd-pleasing steps when we had a perfectly good show for you. We didn't like it. Poor performance, say the Pharisees. The review is in and it's not so good. Didn't do what we had in mind. This morning, brothers and sisters, as we look at Mark 7, I'm going to lean heavily on the concepts of audiences, shows and reviews as I take you through this. And so I need to give you a disclaimer. The disclaimer is that you might find this a little bit anticlimactic this morning. 
Maybe you read a passage and heard the word hypocrites, which stirs emotions in all of us, and you were ready for some lectern banging, stop being a hypocrite, do better, practice what you preach, and me to yell at someone. I'm not going to do that this morning. Uh, I'm not going to affirm hypocrisy. But what I want to do this morning is look at chapter 7 with you in such a way, considering audiences, shows and reviews, that hopefully might help us take steps away from hypocrisy, that might help us think about the community we are and how we can be together in that community. See, when you have a stage, you're inclined to perform. But we have something better than a stage. We have membership of the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God, as Jesus has announced it already in Mark, is a kingdom where the currency, the oxygen, the way is grace. And that's a different kind of space to live in. We want that kingdom currency of grace to permeate the community that is Fig Tree Anglican Church. What is it that we are here to do? You've heard us talk about it. Yes, we want to make disciples of Jesus. Now, to become a disciple of Jesus means you need to stop following something else, start following him. Not be conformed to the way of the pattern, the way of the pattern of the world, but conform to his likeness. That means change. Well, we speak earlier in our mission about what kind of environment we want to be where that change can happen, and that is a community of grace. We want to build a community of grace because in a community of grace, the compulsion to put on an act or to practice hypocrisy just goes away. And you can be authentically you and you can be changed to the likeness of Christ. So let me talk to you this morning, if you will, about audiences, shows and reviews. To be a community of grace and not to be under the same burden that the Pharisees are under here means, about, means thinking about your audience. It means insisting on having an audience of one. Think about the audience that the Pharisees had and spare an empathetic thought for these religious men. Verse 5. The Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, why don't your disciples walk in line with the tradition of our elders? When you're a Pharisee and you're part of the elite, an elite ruling class of Judaism, there's a weight of expectation, isn't there? There are laws and rules that your elders had passed down. They've come from generations. If you claim the name Pharisee, then there's an expectation that you'll do what the elders have commanded. The ghosts of the elders are hovering over you, expecting that you'll live in a certain way. When you claim the name Pharisee and you look at the other Pharisees around you, there's a communal expectation amongst you that you'll uphold the ways of a Pharisee, that you'll live a certain way, that you'll come up to the mark. When you claim the name Pharisee, and you come and you see a teacher you've travelled as an expectant audience, come and see the teacher who everyone's listening to, the one who teaches with authority, you're a little bit disgusted. You're surprised. What is this liberty this man's disciples have? They don't seem to feel the pressure we feel to live up to the expectations and the traditions of the elders. 
I do feel for the Pharisees because sometimes I feel what they feel. Sometimes I feel an expectation of the eyes around me, don't you? The eyes around me that expect me to live a certain way. Now maybe that's at church, people expect me to have a level of godliness, they expect you to have a certain cultural way. Maybe it's in the world, they expect, I'm an Australian so they expect me to uh, try and buy a house or they expect me to do this and that or the other. There might be a concept of, of what beautiful is or handsome is and I might feel that weight of expectation and all these eyes around me cause me to want to come up to the mark like a poor old Pharisee 2,000 years ago. These are real people feeling real stress, real pressure. And they can't understand why Jesus' disciples don't feel the same pressure, perhaps because Jesus' disciples have traded a different audience. See, when you have the audience of the many on you, those are a lot of eyes that you're trying to get applause from, trying to avoid boos from. You know where I'm going with this. Trade the audience of the many for an audience of one and that audience of one is a gracious God. Invite him to be the audience that the performance of your life is played out before. When you ask God to be your audience of one, you've chosen a gracious and true audience. You've chosen an omniscient and all-seeing audience, one who doesn't miss anything. And you know what's great about having a God who sees everything? I can say this from theory, I can say this from experience, it builds amazing resolve. Sometimes the eyes in front of you have expectations, do they not? Sometimes they think you're going to say certain things and they dare you to not say them. Sometimes they have expectation of how you will act and they dare you to not act that way. And they can crush your resolve. Sometimes they miss your motive. Sometimes they assume you're all about this and you know you're not. But when you have an audience of one, a God who sees beyond the external, who sees and counts good intention, who sees and counts truth, who sees all the things, your resolve increases. You become strong. You become willing to step forward, even if the many eyes might not like it. You've got one audience member and it's his applause you're seeking, it's his amen that you're after and you become strong. Do you know what else? I think you become gentle. I think you become strong because you're looking to please him and you become gentle because you don't have that crazy desperation anymore. I'm walking with him, he sees all things, he's in control, I can do this at a measured pace. Audience of one will make you strong and builds resolve. Audience of one and one who sees all. Do you know what else is great about that? It breaks delusion. Now, it's easy to become delusional. You know this as well as I do. You can fool people. Did you know? If you didn't know, I hope I haven't just given someone a trick to try out. But you can fool people some of the time. And people... As much as people can be harsh and your audience of one will give you resolve, people can be flattering too. And you can start to believe your own press. I'm a preacher, right? 
every Sunday I, I, I try and I try to lead the people of God in the things that are godly. And there's, you know, right, that I can't do everything I say. And that's a challenge. And sometimes people have given me far more credit than I'm worthy of. What I love about God who sees everything, he's, he, he protects me from the delusion. Sometimes flattery can pump you up to here and you can believe it. And God says, oh, I see the whole thing. You can fool them, but you can't fool me. So I love it. Because God protects me from when the world is harsh. I get more resolve and I get gentle. And God protects me from when my brain gets a little screwy and uh, I believe the delusion. He says, no, no, here's truth. And you know what else is great about having God as your audience of one? It means that you're very aware that God watches you. And if God is watching you, do you know what that means? It means logically that God's not you. Now this is important. Because we live in a world today that's having a reaction to some of the stress and the pressure of everybody's watching. We felt this. We felt the depression. We felt the anxiety. We felt the challenge of everyone's watching me and I need to be freed from this. So what sorts of things does the world offer? We'll start to say, you just live for you. We go, we go radical individual. Doesn't matter what others think. You've got to live for you. You make the rules now. Where are we seeing this so rampant in our society? Sexual ethics and identity. And we see it in the passage, talking about sexual immorality and stuff like that. There are churches and people who are working so hard to redefine what God has ever said about sexual immorality that it won't even be a thing anymore. Sexual immorality will be a, when you no longer do what you want to do, that's immoral. Because you're not happy. And I'm now God, watching me and giving a sense to the things that I like to do. Or the person that I claim to be. When God is my audience of one, I'm no longer the centre of the universe and my life is played out before him. Once again, he keeps me safe from delusion. I love having God as my audience of one. He's a gracious and a true audience. Do you know what's good for you when I have God as my audience of one? Do you know what's good for me when you have God as your audience of one? It means... It means we can adjust our expectations of one another. See, if you're living for God, one of the things I have to realise is, you're not living for my approval. <gasps> but sometimes you'll do things that aren't pleasing to me. <gasps> sometimes you might even be offensive to me. <gasps> because the praise of heaven is with you. So I'll have to adjust my expectations of you to know that I'm not your God and you're not mine. Because the God who sees all things is the one who you're living for. So does that mean, if I'm saying live with an audience of one and that one is God, does that mean that maybe we should write a song called Mind Your Own Business? Does that mean mind your own business should be in the Proverbs? Does that mean, yeah, mind your own business, get off my case? Well, No. See, as much as many will quote to you, uh, doesn't the Bible say don't judge? They'll have to weigh that verse with the billions of verses that encourage us actually to make judgments, to discern, to be wise and not foolish. We don't understand what this is about. So, 
Perhaps what this means is that a gracious and loving community is different to a licentious community that is all about simply affirming. More power to you. Just do whatever you like because we're gracious. No. If we live with an audience of one, then perhaps, perhaps what we want to do for one another is continue to remind one another of our audience member. I'm not your God. You're not your God. But the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ is. And as he watches your life unfold, do you think he's applauding? You see how it's not mind your own business. This is why 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is God-breathed. It reveals the character and the nature of God. You won't have to make up God for yourself. He tells you what he's like. And what's it useful for? It's useful for training and teaching, correcting and rebuking. It's really useful for leading one another back into the presence of our one audience member and saying, is this what you wish to put before your audience member? He's gracious, he's true, he sees all. How's it going? I love having God as my audience member for one because when you... I don't mean you, I mean a fictional you, a hypothetical you. When you upset me and you refuse to change, then I can remember what Jesus remembered and entrust myself to the one who judges justly. And I don't need you to get right before I make my heart right. I love having God as my one audience member. But we've got to move on from audiences. Let's talk about the show. Let's talk about the show that is my life. And before we talk about the show that is my life, let's talk about the show that was the Pharisee's life. You see, in verses, I don't know, 7, 9, 12, 5, Jesus seems to point out these guys have a really harsh audience that they're playing for. Uh, Their elders, uh, humans, their traditions. These are all the audience members on these poor little Pharisees that has caused these broken Pharisees to just be... A problem to everybody else. They have this audience member and so uh, they have a pressure to live a certain kind of life. To understand what Jesus says to them, you've got to understand something about Jesus' life before he became the full-time preacher. Now, one of my jobs as, as, a, as a teacher of the Bible is to give you a larger view of Jesus. So let me start with the real easy one, even if it's going to ruin Christmas stories for you. You know how we say, Jesus the carpenter? Truth be told, words be thoroughly understood, history be attended to, uh, just like the Josh McDowell book, Jesus is more than a carpenter. But I mean from a tradesman's point of view. The language, it extends beyond carpenter. Jesus is a skilled tool worker. And rarely at this time would anyone be specifically a carpenter. Particularly in this region, there's a lot of stone work to do as well. So there you go, there's a bigger picture of Jesus. Dual trade, at least. I like this Jesus. The tradesman's tradesman. So more than a carpenter, this is a skilled trade worker. Good with tools, knows his way around the shed. So... What happened in Jesus' early years? Well, I told you about the man Herod the Great last week. Herod the Great built a city. That city is about 30 kilometres south of Nazareth. It's called Sepphoris. And when Herod the Great died, there was an uprising. Romans don't like uprisings, so they flatten them and they tend to flatten cities too. Sepphoris was flattened. 
So Herod Antipas, you remember him, wants to be like dad. He rebuilds Sepphoris in the lifetime of Jesus, the skilled tool worker. And Sepphoris becomes to Nazareth probably what Blue Scope has been to Wollongong. Everybody knows somebody who has worked for Blue Scope or contracted to Blue Scope. If you're a trader in Wollongong, Blue Scope is a place you might find yourself in the last 50 years. Jesus of Nazareth and his dad Joseph of Nazareth more than likely spent time plying their trade in a place called Sepphoris, working and building, rebuilding the city. Now, during that time, one of the things that was built, and the ruins are still available to see today, I've seen them with my eyes, is this. Have a look at the screen. This is a theatre. This was built in the time of Sepphoris and a place that Jesus would have seen and known about. Now, Jesus is about to use language that has never been used before in a theological context. Let me tell you where he gets the language from. In these uh, amphitheatres, they would put on shows. One of the ways that they would use to put on shows when you don't have Luke controlling the amplification from the back and, either, and you don't have a microphone is you need other things to tell the story. So those who would put on the story would wear these great big masks. They'd wear great big masks as a way of putting on a character, putting on a face. You see where this is going. They weren't called actors because they didn't speak English. They were called hypocrites. Did you know you can win an award for being a really good hypocrite? You can. You can. It's what the Oscars are. So, it's true. They wear these giant masks, they're called hypocrites, which literally means they put on a persona, they put on a character, they wear that so they can present something for the show, which they're not. Great job. Jesus has this encounter with these Pharisees. They've come as an expected audience, they've watched the show, they ask a question, they give their critique, and Jesus says, you know... You guys with your laws, you remind me of someone. Who is it? Who is it you remind me of? And they're like, Moses? He's like, no, 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 it's not Moses. You remind me of someone. Father Abraham? It's not him. You remind... I was watching a show the other day down at Sepphoris. You remind me of the hypocrites that I see there. They put on a mask to portray to everybody something that they're not. Your lips are your mask that speak of many things that your heart's not invested in. You're under these great burdens. You put them on everybody else. They have to try and play up to them as well. Elsewhere, I think in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus will actually say to the Pharisees, you're like a brood of vipers, you put heavy burdens on people and you won't lift a finger to help them. So everyone has to play act. Everyone has to be a hypocrite just like you. Everyone's got to wear these masks to try and live up to the tradition, live up to the standard. You put on a show, you have the air of godliness, you have the air of being holy, but you're far from being holy. 
And he gives them an example of how ridiculous their lives have become with this idea of the Corban rule. Corban has a history that makes sense. Imagine you're in the temple and you have some kind of special holy dish that is part of uh, serving God. It's dedicated to God. It's separate from other things. So it's holy. Now you're the priest at the temple and you're constantly worried that one Friday night some kid's going to have a bar mitzvah or something. Youth group's going to come into the temple. Someone's going to grab the holy dish and make it a frisbee. You're like, we don't want that to happen. So we've got to make it dedicated. So we call it korban. We say this is dedicated to temple service, dedicated to God. You can't use it as a frisbee. Well, that makes sense. Dedicated for purpose. Well, people get onto this idea (coughs) and as they're buried with different items and things like that and grave robbing is a thing, you know, how can we stop these grave robbers? Well, if they've got no moral conscience, maybe they've got a God fear, put on my headstone, Corban. They won't rob me now. This is security. If they don't respect the grave and they don't have the moral conscience to not steal from the dead, maybe if we say that's dedicated to God, their fear of the Lord will stop them from stealing God's stuff. Well, this goes a step further as Jesus explains to the Pharisees, like, you guys, some of you, what you will do, you will declare yourself Corban. You'll say, I'm so dedicated to God, mum and dad. Look, I'm so dedicated, I'm so busy with God right now, guys, that I couldn't possibly serve you. Even if God called me, I'm busy with God. And you see how the whole thing falls apart and it's quite ridiculous. Jesus says, you guys are hypocrites. You're playing a masked game, claiming to be something that you're not. But this is what ungracious community will do. This is what happens when you're under, under the heavy burden that the Pharisees were under. You start play-acting. This is what happens when churches start to be seen as places where uh, all the good people gather. And so, maybe you, as I have, have a blow-up with your wife in the car on the way to church. Yes, even me, Pastor Shane. Uh, Yes, at home, or one of your kids does something and you go too far in, in yelling and whatever and telling them they shouldn't have done that and the whole thing's yuck. But everyone gets their game face on before they walk into these hallowed halls, right? Have you been there? You don't have to show your hands or anything like that. I suspect lots of us have been there. We put on the mask, we put on the face that's required. Now there's a space for that. Sometimes that's just being attentive to not making others comfortable and a way to love them and things like that. But wouldn't it be wonderful as we thought about churches with crosses and things like this where you almost thought, yeah, I like that cross because X marks the spot. For pirates, it marks where the treasure's buried. Let the world know that these buildings that have X's on them, that's where the people with the issues are. And sign me up. And sign you up too. It's not too cheeky to say. X marks the spot where the people who need help are, the people who have declared themselves having dysfunction, needing help, not coming up to a standard, need 
help and so they come here because this is the gracious environment with the audience of one who is gracious and true who will receive them and doesn't require them to wear masks requires them to come as they are and to dump everything at the foot of the X at the foot of the cross for that is where masks are removed and salvation is found and that leads us to a new review these Pharisees They come, they watch the show, they review the show and they don't like it. Here's what they say in verse 2. They saw some of his disciples eating bread with unclean, that is, unwashed hands. This language of unclean, specifically, is more than unclean. Uh, The original word means common or profane hands. That's a little more serious than just unclean. To explain this, I'm going to teach you the entire book of Leviticus in about 40 seconds. You ready? I know Leviticus is where your annual read the Bible in a year goes to die, but you're going to survive it this morning. Have a look at the screen with me. This is kind of what's going on in Leviticus. Now, I apologise, I left an N off that comment or some kind of computer glitch dropped it for me. There's a major divide in things and people. And the divide between things and people is that which is common or profane and that which is holy. What does it mean to be holy? Holy means, yes, to be separate and dedicated to God, but holy also speaks of proximity. So in the temple, you have a holy place. Inside that, you have a holy of holies. That means it's holier than the holy place. And in the holy of holies is where the Ark of the Covenant is, is and above the Ark of the Covenant is where the presence of God is said to preside between the cherubim. So the Holy of Holies is holier than the most holy, sorry, the Holy of Holies is holier than the holy place because it's closer to God. Right. Within the common space, there are things that are unclean and things that are clean. Now you can get from unclean to clean with ritual washing. It's pretty simple, it's mostly just water. But to go from common, even if you're clean, to holy, it's going to take something outside of yourself, it's going to take sacrifice, it's going to take a blood sacrifice, it's going to take some kind of offering, something's going to have to die. To make that significant of significant jumps, you'll need to be sanctified, made holy. The language of made holy means something else is going to have to act on you, right? There's Leviticus in one page. There's a bit more to it, but anyway, that that should give you a start. The Pharisees and scribes come to Jesus and they see his disciples eating with profane or common hands. Somehow in their mind, they think a good wash might solve this problem. Well, it might make them clean, but it won't make them no longer common. They'll still be common. They'll still be profane. To get from common to holy, which is the other option, they'll have to be made holy. It's interesting that they seem to pay no regard to the proximity of these disciples to the one that even legion, the demon-possessed man, could declare the holy one of God. They missed it. They've missed the proximity to the Holy One of God that these guys are looking pretty holy. 
these guys are with Jesus. And so in their review, they say, your washing's not that good. You're not playing out how you should. You're not good enough. I understand that. I've done that with myself. You've done that with yourself. And we've done that with one another. A gracious community calls for a new kind of review that is not about your performance, but about Jesus' performance. About Jesus, who is the blood sacrifice. Jesus, who is the one who sanctifies. Jesus, who is the one who takes all hands from being common and profane and making them holy. Repentance is about no longer looking in one spot and looking in a new spot. The new review and the new gracious community no longer looks and measures one another by how good you're doing, but looks at your Jesus and how good he's done. And have you put your faith in him? What is your proximity to him? You see, stages anticipate a performance. And the obligation to perform leads to hypocrisy. You know it. I don't need to prove it to you. But a gracious community with an audience of one leads to beautiful unmasking, faithful dependence upon the one who makes us holy, true authenticity and a wonderful repentance where we no longer look and judge one another in an unhealthy way, but instead depend entirely upon Jesus. Let me pray for us. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus. We thank you that he is the master who lifts burdens. We thank you that we are not like those poor, distorted Pharisees trying to live up to the the traditions of their elders, the expectations of one another. But instead, the disciples of Jesus serve under a master who makes us free. Father God, we pray that we might be Jesus' gracious community. We pray that we might live with an audience of one, that God might be the one whose applause we seek. We pray, Lord, for a new show, an unmasked show, one where we know our audience member sees everything and so we come to him as we are. Confident in the review, not because, because it's not based on my performance, but on what he has done for me. And so, Father God, teach us to draw near to Jesus who makes us holy. Teach us to be shadowed in his cross rather than needing masks. And teach us not to feel the burden of the eyes that are on us, but the joy of life under your wonderful, gracious gaze. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.